Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Accessing healthcare can be a challenge if you don't have a condition that fits neatly into a box a physician can identify. You can be accused of being drug-seeking, which is incredibly common if you're a BIPOC person, for example, especially a darker one. Doctors often don't know what to do with you, and they'll bounce you around to other other professionals hoping that one of them will simply figure it out instead of them. It's helpful to have an advocate, and super important to stay organized and have all of your files with you, everything you need to know, so that when a doctor asks, you just have it. Basically, either you or your advocate needs to be the coordinator between the various doctors and medical professionals that you see. Sapphire shares their experience with the healthcare system as a person fighting cancer. Sapphire, you did such a good introduction of yourself last Mm -hmm. time. Do you want to introduce yourself again? So I'm Sapphire. My pronouns are they, them. I identify myself as a queer, non-binary person um, who has a lot of experience and and many intersectional communities, um, including kink and poly and paganism. So, and I'm a chronically ill person who is also currently going through cancer treatment right now. So mm-hmm. I have a, a variety of information. Um, I'm also, because I'm studying interior design, I'm super passionate and about affordable, accessible design for the world. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. So talking about, um, cancer and chemo we talked about cancer a lot Mm -hmm. last time also for folks listening um we will be talking about cancer and chemo so if you need to if you need to turn off the podcast or skip to the next one i 100 percent understand like you do you take care of yourself yeah um talking about chemo though what has the experience of being on chemo um in terms of like how it's changed the way your body functions like what what's been your experience of that i mean every person is unique and the the biggest thing I've noticed is that, and this is something that my medical oncologist said, is that every person reacts to chemo differently. But there are a few things that, as she says, she can guarantee is that for I have breast cancer. I, I have triple mm-hmm. negative breast cancer, which is not 
really that great. I am very grateful that my treatment is working, but it could have not. Um, mm-hmm. So the things that they, that they they can guarantee with with chemo for breast cancer is that it'll make you nauseous, it'll make you fatigued, you're gonna lose your hair. <laughs> Right. Um, but overall, it's like, oh, here's the list of things that could happen. These are the most likely to happen. This is the stuff that is really probably, honestly, yep, going to happen. And for me, it's like, okay, what? Okay. Yeah. The first cycle, so brutal. And I was so sick. And, and, and talking to like my doctor and the nurses, it's like, yeah, yeah. The, how, treatment for cancer has changed a lot in even the last five years but particularly the last you know 10 years um my mom had ovarian and cervical cancer when i was a kid thankfully i don't remember it terribly much but i was talking mm-hmm. to a nurse about it and, and and this was like nearly 40 years ago and back then it was like there wasn't really the anti-nauseas the you know, anti-nausea drugs that there are right. now and, and the nurse told me is that back in the day then it was like they give you the chemo drugs and a bucket <laughs> jeez so i mean i'm grateful that even though things weren't great the first round that you know the medication worked the second round and i was slightly queasy but it was manageable and i you know i changed my diet a little so easy eating you know bland easily digestible foods but, you know, it's a lot of the stuff is like, okay, it, the side effects vary mostly from cycle to cycle. So you never know quite what's going to happen. You know, generally what might happen. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, I had, there, I had to do, I'm doing eight cycles every two weeks until about mid October um, for chemo. So the first four cycles, were two different drugs, um, and I can never remember the names of them because they're complicated medical names. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. like doxorubicin and the other one, something that starts with a C, and I can't remember it off the top of my head. Sure, oh, sure. Hang on. I think oh, I have my notebook. And this is one of the other things is that when I first had my first appointment at the BC Cancer Agency, they handed me this booklet that it's got to be like a good inch and a half thick of all the notes of this is your life as a chemo patient (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh cyclobenza cyclophosphamate that's it so those are the two drugs and the first four cycles and those are the ones that the most hard on your immune system that is the one where Mm -hmm. we'll wipe out your immune system not only will it like lower your white blood cells which makes you more susceptible with being able to get sick so mm-hmm. not only was I washing my hands ridiculous amounts for COVID, <laughs> right? Like every time I go to the washroom, anytime I eat, anytime, right? Literally, anytime I think about touching anything, I'm like, have I washed my hands? <laughs> right. Um, and then also it lowers your platelets, so you're more easily susceptible to bruises and bleeding if oh you get a goodness. cut, or like don't blow your nose too hard, you'll give yourself a nosebleed. <laughs> I like how my brain went immediately to all the kink play I couldn't do. And you're like, no, no, Victor, don't blow your nose. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And uh, white cells, white cells. Where's the third one? What's the third one? So while you're thinking about that, um, I I looked up up triple negative breast cancer. 
um, and I'm learning all about the epidermal growth factor um, receptor, the estrogen receptors and the progesterone receptors. Yes, yes. And that somehow in triple negative breast cancer, all three of those receptors are absent, which means most yep. of the traditional therapies apparently don't work. Exactly. I'm, and I'm sure you know all of yes, this. Yes, I do. And I was going to come back to that is that that's what triple negative means is that. Oh, sorry. Um, is that most common the first thing that they do when someone is diagnosed with breast cancer is do these those three tests as they test for estrogen test for progesterone mm -hmm. and test for this um i think it's a protein the her2 because yeah. if any of those three things come back positive then they can selectively target the cancer with hormone therapy or the mm -hmm. protein therapy can which can make it easier not always can make it easier to mm -hmm. target chemo to make it work better so if right. it comes back triple negative it means that chemo sometimes can't work because it's just right it, there's not a selective thing that they can target um and triple negative often is more aggressive growing especially in folks right. under the age of 50 which <laughs> hi i'm 44 <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that, that sucks yeah and it's it's also like it's a roll like you seriously managed to roll like a two on a d20 yeah yeah like it, it's between 10 and 15 percent so yeah you rolled like a three or under yeah like you had you had a, a dc of of four yeah <laughs> you did not roll well enough on your d20 yeah so the fact that that not only did i have breast cancer but i had triple negative can breast cancer so when i started treatment we had mm -hmm. no idea whether chemo was going to work we had no idea you know that like if chemo didn't work then they try other drugs and if that doesn't work then they try clinical trials and then after that it's like well um we'll cross that bridge when we get there because <laughs> it's like uh because you know my doctor was really honest with me is like triple negative is not what you want to hear <laughs> right and especially as younger because it because triple negative can can be really aggressive growing in younger folks so right. it, it can go from I initially the 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 lump was like four centimeters from the time I found it and then it had grown to almost six centimeters by the time I started chemo and that was like two weeks Jeez. <laughs> so I yeah every day that I get up and then I know that now my doctor cannot find it anymore <laughs> that the chemo has worked that well I I thank all my various gods and goddesses <laughs> legitimate i'm so grateful that you're still here with us I, I, every day <laughs> it's not been fun and there's definitely been challenges with it but i am so so grateful that chemo is working because there was a chance that it it, it couldn't have and that was right. my biggest fear going into this was that chemo wasn't going to work and that would be the, the end of poor sapphire <laughs> yes you know um and i was also I have quite an extensive family history of a variety of different um, cancers. Like I, I think I mentioned in my last podcast, my mom had ovarian and cervical cancer. My grandmother mm -hmm. had um, pancreatic cancer. My great grandmother had uterine cancer. My 
grandfather on my dad's side died of complications of skin. I could go on. <laughs> skin wow. cancer. Uh, there's been bone cancer, uh, uh, brain cancer. Uh, there's been a variety of cancers in my family on both sides of my family quite extensively. So talking to my family about my family history, medical history, um, my doctor's like, yeah, maybe there might be a genetic component to your breast cancer. And then I said, yeah, maybe. And that's that's especially common with the uh, triple negative. As it well. is incredibly common with the triple negative, uh, especially, again, in younger folks. Mm. Um, so they sent a, an, a rushed um, request to the genetic um um, office at BC Cancer because usually it can take like six months or longer for you to get genetic testing through BC Cancer. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and I'm actually because um, I think I have um, EDS, Ehlers Danlos Syndrome. I've been on right. a wait list for two years to have the genetics tested for that. Yes. <laughs> You know, it's, it's crazy when we talk about wait lists, because when my doctor identified that I might have cancer in one of my lymph nodes, yeah. um, I didn't. But I had this weird asymmetrical swelling, which yeah. I think turned out to be scarred tissue from a really bad infection I'd had where my lymph glands both yeah. swole up very large. Yeah. And one of them just developed scarred tissue and didn't quite go down all the way. So I was like, oh, shit, my lymph glands are, glands are asymmetrical, but I don't seem to be sick. What's going on? Yeah. And my doctor palpated my lymph glands and was like, you're right. They do seem to be asymmetrical. That's a little strange. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to send you to an ear, nose, and throat specialist. And, like, don't freak out, but he does work at BC Cancer. <laughs> no. like, oh, okay. So you're saying that you're suspicious this might be cancer. And he's like, let's just say I want to rule it out to make absolutely yeah. sure you don't have cancer, which is, like, the good bedside manner way that a doctor tells you, yes, I think you might have cancer. Yeah. And yeah. literally, I wasn't freaked out when my doctor, my, my GP said you might have cancer. I was freaked out when the specialist called me back within the week to be like, let's schedule you to come in and see the doctor. And I was like, I have never in my life had a specialist follow up within like a few days. Yeah, yeah when... I had an I had an appointment. I was in the office being examined within seven days of my GP giving me the referral. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the other thing is like, I love the Canadian health care system of like going back uh, to dentally is that most of the time it takes forever to do get anything done. When it moves quickly is usually when you start to have to worry. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how I feel too. It's like they'll, they'll make you wait for shit that you could wait for, but you don't really want to. Yeah. So the second they're not making you wait you're like wait who's whose life's in danger is it my life you think my life's in danger yeah are you there yeah oh i'm here okay sorry i moved something and suddenly i couldn't hear anything i was like ah what happened no, um, you're good you're good sorry i i tangentially got got going on my own tangent no um, no it's all good i remembered the third thing that yes chemo did anemia oof so i've been anemic before because um i i had I thought I had endometriosis. I didn't. It mm -hmm. turns out I didn't. I had my uterus was just effective. <laughs> <laughs> I started okay. having abnormal bleeding when I turned about 35 and I ended up having oh, a hyst no. hysterectomy two years ago, which was the best thing I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I have not been to this kind of level anemic. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The fatigue is brutal from the, the anemia. <laughs> I've definitely met like AFAB humans where they're like, doctor, cut it out of me and yeet this uterus out the oh nearest window, God. please. And I don't want to go back to the, the healthcare stuff, but I will tend briefly is that is one of the things that drives me 
absolutely up the wall about mm-hmm. the Canadian healthcare system and medical system in general is that as you know a female bodied AFAB person assigned female at birth is that mm-hmm. as soon as I started having period issues female problems is that it was like oh that's normal that's fine that's fine that's fine it's not fine to be curled up on the floor sobbing in pain my sister was diagnosed in her teens with severe endometriosis i can remember pretty much from the day she started having her period of her literally being curled up on the bathroom floor sobbing in pain because her periods were so bad and it took years and years of talking with my mom advocating for her and stuff uh, to get her on like hormones to get her diagnosed with endometriosis she worked with a specialist out of uh, women's and children who's amazing out of out of women's who's the head of the the pelvic pain clinic which is also amazing place but Mm -hmm. the number of female and assigned female at birth i've seen go through similar troubles like this because they are women and it is expected for women i'm using air quotes here to suffer with their periods it is not good lord it is not normal for people to suffer that much and it should not you should not have to fight your doctor to get proper medical care right over this you know i went to my doctor who was amazing at the time um who rec- right. referred me to an OBGYN because of my yes. period problems, the OBGYN. And now at this point, I've had four children with complications mm-hmm. with all of my pregnancies, including two preterm babies who I had preterm labor with. Um, mm-hmm. Dante, who's 22, was born at six weeks early after having preterm labor and in the hospital on and off for a couple months before. Ash, I ended up after a couple of months of preterm labor, actually ended up in hospital on enforced bed rest for 10 days before he was born at five weeks early. Gray, Mm -hmm. I started having preterm labor at like near like seven months pregnant and was in and out of hospital. And when he was born, they were born. Yes. Gray's not super particular on the pronouns, so I switch sometimes. With, totally it, with their pronouns uh, when they were born i actually hemorrhaged <laughs> oh no which was super scary and after gray was born i decided i was done having children and in fact when i went to see my OBGYN at the time there he was like you you really don't want to have any more children do you and i went no no i'm good and i had my tubes tied at that point because i was like nope no mm. more children for me when i saw the other OBGYN many years later they're like, you're so young, you might want to have more children. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I was 35. I've had four children. My youngest was like 13 at the time. No. Hey, you're no. like, why do you think this is a good idea? And they're like, well, we'll just try you on hormones and stuff and see if we can manage it that way. I'm like, sure. Okay. I'm willing to try. But based on my family history, it's probably not going to work. You are generous friend to be willing to try hormones when at that point you were like, literally like, let's see who can throw this uterus the farthest. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's got out of yeah. me and huck it. Yeah. I mean, I went through a bunch of stuff with that and eventually did get to the point where I was pushing and pushing for surgery, but the OBGYN I was seeing at the time wouldn't hear it. And I eventually changed doctors. And when I had 
eventually was able to change doctors. When I first saw that doctor, at that point, I had been bleeding for six months. Oh. That wasn't contr- it was it wasn't like I was heavy bleeding, but it was like the hormones like, I was done on knocked it down to slightly bleeding, but never stopped. So you were just you were just <laughs> continuously spotting, basically continuously spotting for six months. Jesus. And when I went and saw that doctor, he was the surgeon who did my hysterectomy. He's like, so when would you like surgery? <laughs> and I'm like, I could hug you. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's the difference in medical care between physicians that listen to what you have to say yeah. and trust your assessment of your quality of life. And those that don't, even just as a person who's dealt with this weird unknown intestinal condition that is tentatively IBSC, like a person who gets chronic pain. Mm-hmm. They're the doctors that listen to me when I say that I have, you know, that I've had like, a, that I had an eight out of 10 headache the previous days mm-hmm. and doctors that are like, sure, sure. Yeah. You had a nine out of 10. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I've done decorative cutting for fun where someone cuts a design into my skin with a scalpel without <laughs> yeah. anesthetic. I'm not lying yeah. when I say nine out of 10, yeah. like I'm not like nine out of 10 is the highest pain I've ever reported in my entire yeah. life. And there are two or three headaches that are the most notable in the entirety of my life where I can yeah. say I was starting to get shock symptoms from the pain. Yeah. Like I was getting tingles in my hands. Yeah. Like I couldn't, couldn't quite feel my hands. Yeah. I had weakness. I had brain fog. Like the pain was so intense. I couldn't, yeah. manage like I yeah. couldn't I just couldn't right like I was like yeah. on the ground on carpet being like I kind of want to be in the bath in hot water but also if I like pass out that's not a good place to be <laughs> no, like no drowning <laughs> no no drowning um and then also like if I pass out and this is actually really serious do I just die yeah like I've definitely taken all the painkillers I can at that point yeah. and they're not controlling the pain and you come to this place of acceptance where you're just like oh, this pain's entirely out of my control and that has to be okay because if it's not okay, I'm going to panic in addition to this and that's yeah. not going to help anything. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. As somebody yep. who's been chronically ill and had chronic issues for uh, almost 18 years, because that's how old Gray will be in January, um, oh. I've had back issues pretty much for 18 years and I've been fighting the medical system Oof. over my back issues for 18 years. Uh, because um, doctors are fat phobic assholes (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, they are fat phobic uh, like dismissive of female bodied pain assholes (laughs) not all of them but on the majority Well, there's, there's a lot of bigotry stacking there, right? Yeah. There's the fact that you're femme presenting. There's the fact that you're AFAB. There's there's being larger. There's being um, different in gender. Like yeah. any and all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, is like, like even before I had all my like gender stuff going on. And I've I've been a larger person pretty much most of my adult life. I th- it's just sure. genetics. <laughs> sure. Um, my grandmother was six foot two and probably right. around 250, 300 pounds. She was not a small lady. Wow. Um, just right. genetic. Very solid. Genetic. Could, a large German lady. <laughs> sure. Could um, crush you with her hand kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and my awesome. mom's not a small person. It's genetics. Uh, I don't look like I'm 250 pounds, but I am. Probably because you're tall. I am. I am 5'8", and then then deceptively (laughs) hiding. (laughs) Some people are like, really? You're that heavy? I'm like, yeah, just I'm dense. (laughs) I am am dense. A lot of it's muscle okay. Um, But 
uh, and I've been dealing with back problems pretty much as long as I can remember. Um, also probably genetics and the fact that I probably have EDS. Um, and I didn't realize that was a thing that was a problem. (laughs) Well, and it can make it so hard to exercise because nothing's holding your joints in place except the muscle. No. And I, when my, I really like when I first noticed it, it was my first pregnancy with, with Mm. my oldest daughter, who's now 25. I was 18 when I got pregnant with my oldest daughter. I was a teenage parent, single teenage parent. And Mm -hmm. oh my God, the discrimination against that. Uh, Because this was 25 years ago and things have kind of changed, but not really. (laughs) But I went to the doctor saying, oh, my back's really hurting. I'm having a hard time walking around. They're like, oh, it's fine. You're just pregnant. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) And after after I've now had my kid. (laughs) After she was born, it's like, you know, my back's still hurting. Oh, it's you were pregnant. It's fine. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I was 18. I didn't really have the, I'm going to say the balls to yeah. stand up to my doctor at that point. And then when I was, you know, pregnant with my second child, I noticed that my back got sore quicker, sooner in my pregnancy and took longer for me to bounce back. And with, mm-hmm. my, you know, with Ash and Gray, it was like by the end of my pregnancies with them, I couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. You know, that's terrible. And like I went, you know, went finally went to the doctor and the doctor's like, okay, and sent me for some tests and stuff and sent me to a specialist who's like, oh, you shouldn't be lifting or carrying anything over 20 pounds. I literally went like, I have a newborn and a two year old. That's not happening. Right. Right. (laughs) And then over the years is like my back. I would have times where my back would seize up so bad that I had to be carried out of my house on a spine board. Oh, no. Taken to the ER and have a bunch of tests run where doctors are like, we don't know what's wrong with you. Oh, right. your back's out of alignment, but we don't know why you can't move. Oof. Or yeah. like, and and then, oh, you need to follow up with your, your regular GP. Follow up with my regular GP. Uh, well, your x-rays show that there's nothing, you know wrong with the nerves or anything there there is structural anomalies but we can't figure out why you're in so much pain and can't move and have numb spots on your legs i'm like that sounds awful cts aren't designed to look at soft tissues could i have an mri no (laughs) (laughs) that sucks what (laughs) i'm so sorry sapphire that sounds horrible it's been a i have an amazing doctor now he's been wonderful and i actually have been managing my back stuff fairly well considering um oh my goodness i don't know what i would do without my gp yeah not to make this about me no like but yeah i have a good doctor now and he listens to me but or or i go to my doctor and they'd be like well you need to go to physiotherapy i'm on welfare that's the other thing that physio is not covered by by msp or if it is covered right. it's six visits they cover six visits <laughs> and when your physio right. wants to see you every two weeks you do right. the math <laughs> right yeah it's like, ironically oh. when i got injured at work um workers compensation board covered me really well for physio mm-hmm. i like lurched my back moving a printer and they're like cool we're gonna give you as many visits as you want for like two months or whatever and then if you need to extend your time you need to get your physio to send us a letter explaining why you didn't recover in this time period yeah so i was like that's amazing yeah so it's like i i can't go to physio because i i can't afford to go to physio because even if it's 
covered it's still i think it was like 20 or 25 dollars a visit which is not unhorrible but it's like i don't have right. that in my budget and then there's <laughs> premium assistance as well that gives you i think 20 bucks per session yeah. up to 10 sessions a year yeah. which is like not and that's useful. only a relatively new thing oh right yeah yeah, I've been dealing for, with this, my back stuff for, like I said, 18 years. And right. and that wasn't a thing back then. And Or right. or they're like, my doctor would be like, oh, you just need to exercise and lose weight. I'm like, I literally can't get out of bed. How am I supposed to exercise and, and yeah. lose weight when I can't get out of bed? And the attitude I always got, I felt like was, oh, you're just drug seeking. I'm not drug seeking. I hate taking, right. I hate taking um, opiates because they knock my ass out. <laughs> yeah well it's like i don't like taking my... d3s i don't like taking morphine i don't like right. taking strong drugs because they knock my ass out and when mm -hmm. my kids were really little i was a single parent and i can't afford right. to be unconscious basically with you know a bit, you know two small children Yeah, totally <laughs> even now i can't really afford to be out of it based on on like with opiates and stuff so i'm like i know you give me a prescription for t3s that like 10 pills and it'll last me like a month <laughs> right i'm not drug seeking i'm literally legit in pain and want to figure out how am i supposed to function in my everyday life and and it, it took me 14 years until my physiotherapist said hey why is your back like this have you right. ever considered going for an MRI? And I'm like, I've been trying for 14 years. And she sent a letter to my doctor. And my doctor's like, okay. Because my doctor's amazing. <laughs> and sent me for, it's... finally sent me for an MRI, which showed what I had basically been saying up to that point for 14 years is that I have nerve damage and nerve compression in my back. Right. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if you go to enough doctors and you advocate hard enough, you'll get everything you need. But you basically need to go with a partner or someone impartial or that the doctor sees as impartial to advocate for you, which yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, I am not the only person I know who's run into stuff like this, mm -hmm. especially if there are larger folks. Totally. Uh, especially if they're larger, larger assigned female at birth folks, because yeah. the dismissal of, of people like me is is so bad. And it, it, it makes me so angry <laughs> because <laughs> it is just not fair. And yeah. Anyway, it's reasonable to be really angry about that yeah. because it is. I got totally slightly sidetracked because, like, I, I, I it, stuff like that makes me so, so mad. Um, yeah, that's okay though. You're yeah. allowed to be mad. Yeah, I mean, not that you need my permission, but I'm just saying, as a podcast host, you can be as angry as you want and ranty as you want on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I am grateful because I, I have friends and family. Uh, who live in the states um and i know how bad it can be down there um right my husband's mom lives in seattle and has ms <laughs> i can't even imagine yeah uh, she's lucky that she has really good extended health care through her work but a lot of folks i know don't mm -hmm. and they're just like and i see and i try not to look at the news articles too much because it stresses yes. me out but i see yes. this the the stuff that folks in the states are experiencing because of covid like i've been in hospital for 20 days and now i owe two million dollars 
And I'm not really exaggerating on that. Not, that, not much. to mention the long haulers, uh, the yeah. whole long haul situation yeah. of um, all the people that end up with symptoms for more than 100 days. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's not looking great. But yeah. fortunately, that's only, I think, about 5% of all the yeah. people that have it. Yeah. It, it's, but it's, it's bad. It's scary stuff. <laughs> so since we are on a new topic, would you like to end the session? And we will start another one and talk more about adjusting to a new normal. Yeah, sure. That sounds good. Sounds Sounds good. Thank you so much again, yeah. Sapphire, for being on my podcast. You are most talking welcome. Me. Yeah. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions. Or you can go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com. And I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.